Last night, I congratulated Donald Trump and offered to work with him on behalf of our country. I hope that he will be a successful president for all Americans. This is not the outcome we wanted or we worked so hard for, and I'm sorry that we did not win this election for the values we share and the vision we hold for our country. But I feel, I feel pride and gratitude for this wonderful campaign that we built together, this vast, diverse, creative, unruly, energized campaign. You represent the best of America, and being your candidate has been one of the greatest honors of my life. I know how disappointed you feel because I feel it too. And so do tens of millions of Americans who invested their hopes and dreams in this effort. This is painful, and it will be for a long time. But I want you to remember this. Our campaign was never about one person or even one election. It was about the country we love and about building an America that's hopeful, inclusive, and big-hearted. We have seen that our nation is more deeply divided than we thought. But I still believe in America, and I always will. And if you do, then we must accept this result and then look to the future. Donald Trump is going to be our president. We owe him an open mind and the chance to lead. Our constitutional democracy enshrines the peaceful transfer of power. And we don't just respect that, we cherish it. It also enshrines other things, the rule of law, the principle that we are all equal in rights and dignity, freedom of worship and expression. We respect and cherish these values too, and we must defend them. You remember that morning. It was November 9, 2016, and defeated presidential candidate Hillary Clinton had gotten even less sleep the night before than the rest of us. In fact, things had started falling apart early on election night. Confirmed political junkies like me saw the look on James Carville's face in the hour after the polls closed in Florida, listened to his uncharacteristically clipped, subdued tone, and knew he wasn't seeing the early numbers for Clinton that he wanted to see in that state, or anywhere else. Clinton would not learn definitively that she had lost the election for another nine hours. But the mood in places like my neighborhood in New York City grew increasingly gloomy throughout the evening. We watched, stunned, as Clinton lost states to Donald Trump she should have won, and was deadlocked or behind in key Midwestern states that the Democrats had held in national elections for generations. By 2 a.m., critical bricks in that so-called blue wall, Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, had either fallen or were falling to Trump. I went to bed uncertain what America I would wake up to. Hillary may have gone to bed, but if she did, as I said, I don't think she slept much. 
The next day, Clinton gave what was by any measure an outstanding concession speech. Wearing a black suit with purple sateen lapels that was supposed to summon the history of women's suffrage to the victory platform. Now it seemed downright funereal. And compared to what has happened since, her words sound like they came from another century, not seven years ago. Last night I congratulated Donald Trump and offered to work with him on behalf of our country. I hope he will be a successful president for all Americans. This was a particularly gracious offer, considering that Trump had encouraged his partisans to chant, Lock her up! invited women who had accused her husband of sexual assault to one of the debates, and spread false rumors that Clinton herself was chronically, perhaps fatally, ill. I won't go on. Unless you are younger than ten, you probably remember it yourself. And you remember what came after. A unilateral ban on travelers from Muslim-majority countries entering the United States. The brief elevation of a conspiracy theorist to the position of national security advisor an attempt to blackmail Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky into smearing Joe Biden with a fake corruption scandal, impeachment number one, an attempt to overthrow a legally constituted United States election, impeachment number two. By the time Joe Biden was inaugurated in January 2021, we knew that Trumpism was an assault on our democratic system, the likes of which we had not seen since the Civil War. Somewhere in there, Heather Cox Richardson, a professor of history at Boston College, started writing long Facebook posts about the state of our nation. Richardson is no stranger to creating history for a general audience. She has written seven books, and nearly all of them could be a holiday gift for your relative who is passionate about intelligent, well-written political history. She's done three podcasts, most recently Now and Then, co-hosted with Yale historian Joanne Freeman. But those Facebook posts began to gather a mass audience, and in 2019, Richardson launched a substack, Letters from an American, to help what was now a substantial audience of readers make sense of the first Trump impeachment. Once the impeachment was over, she plucked a news item from the day's political events to delve into, or told a story from our nation's history that illuminated the present. Four years later, Richardson is still at it. Every morning, there is a newsletter waiting for tens of thousands of subscribers. Letters from an American is the top politics newsletter on Substack, beating out The Bulwark, Glenn Greenwald, and Matt Taibbi, among others. It's so popular that in 2022, she was invited to interview President Joe Biden one-on-one -on -one at the White House. Now, just in time for the 2024 election season to go into high gear, Heather has a new book out to help us think about how we got here. Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America. It documents the history of reaction in the United States and the countervailing progressive forces that have pushed us toward equality and justice. As importantly, it is written to give us hope. Like our forebears, Americans can fight for the nonpartisan ideals on which this country was founded. We can fight for the rule of law. We can fight for the Constitution. The real one, not the one Steve Bannon made up in the basement of his D.C. townhouse. And like Americans before us, we can wage that struggle in our communities, in alliances that bring those who care about democracy together, and at the ballot box. Join Heather and me for this episode of Why Now? Where History and Politics Meet the Challenge of Today. And I'm your host, Claire Potter, Professor of History Emeritus at the New School for Social Research, a contributing editor at Public Seminar, and the author of The Political Junkie Substack. This is Episode 41, Heather Cox Richardson Believes in You. Music
Cox Richardson, welcome to the show. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be here, Claire. I know. We never get to see each other. So, Heather, you have a new book, Democracy Awakening. You've been on book tour. Can you tell our listeners the arc of the story that you tell about America in that book? Yeah, the book was intended originally to be a series of essays that explain things that people ask me every day, like how the party switched sides. But pretty quickly, I realized that what everybody asks me all the time is, how did we get here? Where are we? And how do we get out? And so the arc of the book is in three sections, 10 short chapters in each. The total length of the book, I think, is about 250 pages. And it starts with how we got to this political moment, beginning in 1937, lasting until 2015, what it looked like for former President Donald Trump to take over the executive branch and his attempt to turn it into an authoritarian government, and then crucially, how we get out of this moment. And it centers the use of language and the use of history to explain how strong men overturn democracies. So listeners, this is news you can use. And Heather, I want to ask you, why 1937? Why begin there? Well, it was a little bit odd, actually. It turns out that in 1937, people who hated FDR and hated FDR's New Deal, that was a new deal for the American people through the government, really sort of thought that when he took office in 1933 and he put a whole bunch of stuff in place, that he was going to be a flash in the pan and 36 would wake people up and they would vote him out of office. But of course, he's reelected in 1936. And then people who really hate the idea of regulating business and they really hate the idea of pushing back against racial hierarchies that the New Deal had begun to do, they get together. And they decide they're going to launch a concerted effort to undermine this new kind of government. And they produce this document called the Conservative Manifesto. And it has in it a, a piece by piece refutation of what the New Deal was doing. So they say, you shouldn't regulate business because men should be allowed to do whatever they want with their own businesses and they should be able to make as much money as they want. And that's the way the world should work. The government shouldn't provide a basic social safety net like social security because that belongs to the churches. The government shouldn't promote infrastructure the way it was during the New Deal because that too should be done by private enterprise and that money should come to individuals who could then use it however they wished. And the government certainly shouldn't mess around with racial hierarchies. They called for something called home rule, which meant that the states got to decide civil rights within them. Now, the conservative manifesto disappears really quickly because it gets leaked to the press and the Democrats who signed on to it ran away from it because they didn't want to be seen as criticizing their own president. And the Republicans who signed on to it ran away because they wanted to criticize FDR on their own. But that conservative manifesto gets picked up in newspapers across the country and really pushed by chambers of commerce. And the reason I started there is because where we are right now is in this attempt to overturn that new deal. And listen to what I just said. Isn't that exactly where we are right now today in 2023? It certainly is. And I want to say, listeners, we historians always believe in change over time, but part of what we do is we pick up these signs and we track them over time. And that's 
what Heather's really done in this book. I, another piece of this, of course, is America First, Heather, right? Exactly. Uh, and, and we are even using the same language nowadays that a president and the federal government should focus solely on America. And that's isolationist, it's racist, and it has taken on a bunch of different aspects in the years since the 1920s when it first really took off. But it's still the same sort of poison. So Heather, I want to talk about the writing of this book a little bit, because as I was reading it, and it's a truly enjoyable read, I felt like I was listening to a really, really skilled teacher. And I wonder how much your work as a historian giving lecture courses has contributed to your capacity to synthesize such a long period of time in such a persuasive way? So that is a really good question. And partly, I think it really has. That is, when we go to give a lecture course, there's so much you can't put in. There just isn't room for it. And you recognize how deeply you have to pare things down so that they make sense in a narrative arc. But I actually think there was something else going on as well. And it ties to the letters I write every night. And that is that if you look at my old books, especially my first books, you know, the thing that I always stood on was they're phenomenally well-researched. Like if I didn't have 13 pieces of evidence, I didn't put stuff in because I was always sort of stepping back and saying, see, see, here's another caveat. Here's another you know, way to look at this. See, I've done all this. And part of this book was being able to say to myself, it's okay. Like if I can't talk about something, sure, somebody's going to get upset, but that's not the story I'm telling. And that's not the story that my readers want to hear. I think of it almost as, as walking on a high wire without a net, because you trust that if you fall, people will, will catch you, is part of teaching, but it's also part of writing for four years every night and knowing that I'm going to make mistakes and that people cut me a little grace when I do that. I'm sure they do cut you, Grace, when you do that, because the letters are so interesting. One of my relatives said she loves getting the letter every morning because it gives her something to think about all day. What was your purpose in choosing a letter format? You were a 19th century historian to begin with. So is that why you chose letters? So it's funny you say that. Partly. I mean, it's based on first letters from an American farmer, Krev Kaur's early um, book about the United States when he's trying to figure out what it means to live in a democracy. And he very famously asks, what is this American, this new man? And it was also based on Alistair Cook's letters from America, in which once a week he would do a snapshot of the United States, which is great. I mean, because sometimes it was, you know, about a fisherman, and sometimes it was about the president, and sometimes it was about a tattoo artist. But it was always a snapshot of what he thought America looked like that day. Actually, Claire, nobody's ever asked me that before. And I will tell you something that I don't think I've ever said before. First of all, I have talked about the fact my mother wrote letters all the time. And I just thought that's what people did. They wrote letters all the time. But when I was a kid, we lived in a fairly isolated place. And my best friends, we, we would all get together every summer, but then everybody would go back to their homes, their winter homes, and we weren't in touch with each other. So we wrote absolutely voluminous letters to each other every single day. And it's funny because of the three of us who wrote repeatedly, 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 one now writes uh, not infrequently for a local newspaper, but the other two of us became college professors. And of the four of us, 
Only two of us went to college, the two who became college professors. And I said to my friend once, funny that we all grew up together, but two of us went on to college and became college professors and the other two never went to college. And she said, you're kidding, right? And I said, no. And she said, we wrote letters to each other all the time. That's what we did. We were writing, we were studying, we were thinking all the time. And so it's one of the things about parenting that, that always used to surprise me is you cannot know when your kids are little, what's going to end up making a difference. And having my best friend live a thousand miles away turned out to be actually formative for who I became. That's really interesting. And it leads me actually back to Democracy Awakening. One of the remarkable qualities of the book is it's extremely accessible. And now I'm starting to think, well, maybe Heather wrote it for a lot of people who maybe didn't go to college, but are eager to learn and read and be engaged as citizens. So I grew up with a lot of people who didn't go to college. And the answer is that I have never felt that there was a great deal of difference in intelligence between people who went to school and people who didn't. The difference is what your experiences are, what you're good at, and what you have knowledge about. So it is partly, I guess, for everybody, whether you went on to college or not, but partly one of the tricks, I think, to writing simply is that it's really hard to do. So people make the mistake of thinking that if you're writing for a popular audience, you're dumbing things down. And in fact, it's just the opposite because there are no shortcuts. There are no, oh, you remember that book. There are no places where you can sort of slide over something. And I learned that when I wrote the Wounded Knee book. Um which is about the Wounded Knee Massacre, my editor at the time was very good about really slowing down my writing so that I didn't make any leaps. But at one point, my Lakotas got on a train and they went off somewhere. And she said to me, where did they go? And I was like, well, well, I don't know. And I spent all night sitting up trying to figure out where they had gone. And I actually, the next day I wrote to her, I said, I'm sorry, I cannot find it. I don't know where else to look. And she said, okay, just say so. But but you can't just leave somebody hanging. And that's something that I absolutely would have done without that kind of editorial guidance. That's really interesting. Tell us what else you learned writing this book. What else did you learn about how to bring history to the widest audience possible? The more that I look at the present and look then look back at the past, I see things that really surprised me about the interplay between the United States and other countries and how that's affected our world today. But I, I, I guess if, and I'm not sure this just comes from the letters or from this book, somebody said to me once, actually somebody in a Xerox store said to me once that you should always use words and concepts you can drop on your foot by which he meant nouns, strong verbs. And if something isn't happening, don't tell us about it. So somebody's always got to be an actor. And I like that a lot because I think academic writers sometimes don't want to assign blame to anybody. So things just happen. And often they happen in the passive voice. If you'll notice, I never, ever write in the passive voice. Very occasionally, my copy editor will put something in the passive voice because she'll say, you just have to slow this down here. But I always make sure I have an actor in every single thing I write about because that's really what history and what life is, is people doing stuff. Yeah, and they're actors in the letters too. Every day you open a letter and there's something happening and someone's doing it. How do you choose what you're going to write about, given how chaotic and active our world is? 
I try and think about it like a historian. And what historians do is they study how societies change. So what I'm always looking for is not what might happen. Historians don't care about what might happen. We care about what has happened and how that has affected our societies. So pretty quickly, you can see that there are patterns that are developing. Certain things are moving in certain ways. And many of the things that seem important in the daily political grind aren't really that important in the longer scheme. So my example of that recently is that I did not cover the last Republican candidate debate. Because really, what's it going to change? As long as Trump is still the front runner, it was just two hours that people could be spending doing something better. But that very same night, what I did cover was the selfie that Sean Fain, the president of the United Auto Workers, and President Joe Biden took together in which they complimented each other. Because that was part of a longer story of Biden's quest both for support for his 2024 election, but also his outreach to workers and all the ways in which Sean Fain represents something new in the the labor movement, but also something really quite old in his social gospel Christianity that seems to be moving forward again. So that's a place where I don't think any other political observer, certainly no journalist said, we're going to skip the debates and talk about a selfie. But to me, if I were writing a book, I'd I'd have written about the selfie and not the debates. Part of what you're saying, which is really interesting, is that this thing that we do, the substacking, really plays a role in elevating stories that are important as the media is sort of rushing to something they have to cover. They have to cover the Republican debate even though nothing happened. And what Substackers can do, and particularly one with as huge an audience as yours, is say, hey, something else happened. And it really matters. And it really matters as we're moving toward an election. But I didn't mean to cut you off about writing, Heather. I think you have more to say about that. Well, so one of the things that that I I think you will appreciate as a writer is, and, and it interfaces with the idea of actors, that is one of the things that I'm always trying to convince people of, is that they have agency, they can change the future. So one of the things that I hope was somewhat subtle but powerful in the book was the first section of the book when I talk about how we got here, the actors are almost exclusively uh, white men. Uh, single lawmakers, elite leaders. And then when we get to the Trump section, of course, that theme sort of gets onto steroids, but very quickly you start to see alternative voices. And the third section, when I talk about taking back democracy, I really highlighted those marginalized alternative voices. And that was something that was something a writer would do. I was very aware I was doing it. It might be more subtle than most people are seeing when they pick it up and read it. But I hope it created real momentum, both with the storyline, but also with the recognition that you go from William F. Buckley Jr. and you know Ronald Reagan and sort of that sort of figure to the marginalized Americans that really pick up the momentum at the end of the book. Really, you make the point in the book that it's marginalized Americans who are constantly providing the impetus for refreshing democracy. Yeah, what did um, you think of that? Did you are, did you buy that? I thought it was terrific, and I think that as a card-carrying member of a marginalized group, a lesbian who grew up in homophobia and is now married to her life partner, something I never would have imagined happening. And if you look at the trajectory of gay marriage, it has pushed a whole conversation about family, 
about single motherhood, about reproductive freedom, and it sort of worked in tandem with a range of other issues that constitute a conversation about the kind of rights people have over their bodies and their lives. So I thought it was fantastic. I also thought that if you think about even more obvious examples like the civil rights movement, you know, it's not until black people start demanding the vote in the South that it becomes possible for 18 year olds to say, hey, we want the vote too. And that's part of the same conversation. And so expanding democracy actually is a process of including more people and asking them what they think and what they want. So what I was trying to do there, first of all, I think it's right, uh, but, and we could talk more about that, but one of the points I was trying to make is that the idea that America was ever perfect in the founding era is authoritarian history. The idea that we can get back to that perfect moment if only these terrible people in the present stop standing in the way of divine law or traditional law or whatever. And I don't mean laws. I mean, this these concepts of there's one way to do this and, and somebody like Donald Trump will take us back to it on the one hand. And on the other hand, the thinkers who focus on just how oppressive our system has been, because of course it has been. I'm a fan of the concepts of the founders, and I'm very aware of how far we have gone from meeting those principles. But what I was hoping to do was to create a new approach to small d democratic history that both recognized the oppression of the American polity for centuries, but also recognized the agency of marginalized communities to take that on and how when they did that, they opened up liberal democracy. So it was kind of trying to integrate both of those stories to create something new and quite progressive. I think that's really interesting. I want to get back to talking about your audience, Heather, since one of the changes in my life since you started writing Letters from an American is I used to be on airplanes, in the community garden, in restaurants, and some stranger would find out that I was a historian and they would say, oh, are you interested in World War II? <laughs> and now usually they say, do you know Heather Cox Richardson? And I say, yes, in fact, I do. You are ubiquitous among a range of people but particularly women. And I want to talk a little bit about where you picked up this large audience of women who want to be engaged in the struggle for democracy. Okay, so we could talk about where I picked them up and how I picked them up, but I think you are identifying something that I find absolutely fascinating. And that's that I would argue, I'm in my 60s, that we are people about my age are the first generation of American women who have had careers, have solid college educations that has created kinship networks, rather, by the way, as a historian, like early college graduates who went on to form the settlement houses. I should write about that. Um, We have skills, we have connections, and some of us have money. And we also have much longer lives than our parents did. So we're looking at a period of from 20 to 30 years after our our children leave the house, where we have this period of 20 to 30 years in which we have time for a dramatic second act. And somebody said to me the other day, you know what I want? You know, I've raised my kids. I have my career. You know what I want? 
I want to be a good ancestor. I'm going to spend the next 30 years being a good ancestor. And I thought, how freaking cool is that? That's exactly right. It's not me. It is this community of people, and they're not just women, but I think that you're right, that their core of it is women who are taking an interest in society, sort of horrified by where we are, and not necessarily about politics per se, but about school shootings, for example, and inequality and homelessness and all the things that we would like to see addressed. But rather than sitting back and sort of hoping that somebody will address them, women are stepping up and saying, yeah, it's on me. I will do this. So I think I didn't find this community. I think this community found me because once I started to explain for friends what was happening with the first impeachment in 2019, September of 2019, people were starved just to learn how the system works. And people like you and me, we know how the system works. I think that's interesting. I have another theory that I'd like to test out on you. And it's the last chapter of my book, Political Junkies, where there are all of these women on secret Hillary Clinton Facebook groups because they're so sick of fighting with their friends and they don't want to be attacked anymore and they love Hillary Clinton. And of course, it's these women who go on to organize the first women's march. But I think that there's a connection to Facebook because you started Letters from an American writing notes on Facebook. And I think those women who were already part of an audience, part of a group, may have connected with you there. What do you think about that? I think that's entirely possible. And I'm going to push that a little bit because, and it's not just me, by the way, there are plenty of people that are organizing in different ways, not necessarily writing about politics, but doing things with very large followings on different kinds of social media. And I find this fascinating for a number of reasons, but one of the things that has really jumped out to me in doing all the work that I do is the degree to which we have been, we in the United States and other countries as well, but I'm going to focus on the United States, have been victims of the attempt to create a false political reality. And this is a political theory that you get people to give up on democracy by convincing them of a world that is not true. And there's a number of ways in which you do it, you know, and it all, they all involve, almost all involve social media. So you flood the zone with so much stuff that people can't make sense of it and they give up. And so they walk away and let a strong man take over. You feed them disinformation so they don't know what's real any longer and they make bad decisions. There's a couple of other ways you do it as well, which I find really interesting. But both of those two things depend on social media. And for me, the question has always been, Yes, this works. We know this works. We've seen it work in places like Hungary, and we certainly saw it work in 2016 in the United States. But what happens when people wake up and realize that they have been manipulated? Somebody I was talking to from a different field said, oh, we know in my field what happens. The person said, you know what happens is that once people recognize what has been done to them, they take over those technologies and they use them to reestablish principles, facts, and democracy. And I thought, well, you know, that's kind of what we're doing. We're using the same tools that corrupted us to reclaim this country. And I think that's really cool. What do you think? I think it's really cool too. And I think the one thing that really stands in the way is the failure to reform social media adequately and the failure of the government, and it's a complicated failure because it comes from many different directions, to regulate social media and demand EU or Australian style standards of truth on those platforms. I absolutely agree with you. And, you know, 
we have talked about privacy before and the privacy laws and how that, you know, how the EU, for example, worked with those. But for me, it's the freaking algorithms. One of the things that I think has that creates a, a false reality in politics is you see the same stories or variations of them in so many different ways and so many bots and so many comments that you start to feel like you're in a minority. And the reality is that those are artificial. They are entirely artificial. And we know that the social media companies could absolutely take care of that. My moderator on Facebook does. You can absolutely tell if somebody is real or not, but they don't want to do it because they want the engagement. They want the engagement and they don't want to spend the money on moderation. I mean, there, there have been books written about moderation that show it is as high stress a job as flying drones in Afghanistan. Really? Yeah. People have breakdowns doing moderation because it's just a sewer pit. Um, and so you really actually have to pay people a lot of money to do it if you're going to get the job done. Presumably, AI tools should be able to be tweaked to do this. But of course, if they are, what are we going to see? We're going to see conservatives coming back at us and saying, we're being censored. We're being pushed off the platform. So what's the answer? I am not the person who knows the answer, but looking at it as somebody who cares about democracy, I'm a, a staunch believer in free speech. But part of free speech is the accurate identification of who's doing the speaking. If you think of social media as a town square, you know, instead of having one guy on his soapbox, you have that one guy multiplied a thousand times. So the 300 people who are listening think that they're in a minority. And that's not fair. That's not free speech. That's, I would argue, is the opposite of free speech. And I think one of the problems is that you can't limit it to free speech because what you have to think about is how people have learned to read on social media, how people have learned to think on social media. And I see this all the time in conversation now that people will take one thing out of a sentence that you said and say, well, you must believe blah, 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 which is not a human dynamic I was used to prior to social media. And those kind of hot takes and jumping off of what somebody said and claiming that what it infers is what they actually said, I think is a post-2016 dynamic. Interesting, because I find that enormously frustrating. And even in writing the letters, often I will say that something happened. And you know, quietly, it will not be something that I like that it happened, but it, it happened. And I get letters saying, well, you're advocating this. I'm like, no, I'm not. Read what I said. I said, this happened. I didn't say, I like that this happened. And people seem to be unable to distinguish between literally what the words say. This happened versus I'm really glad this happened. I attributed that to a lack of sort of logic training, which honestly, I think is too thin on the ground in this country to begin with. And I'm not sort of being snarky and saying, oh, we need more people who know logic. But logic is actually a study that, that is really important nowadays when people look at really convoluted issues. You need to be able to untangle them and say, let's pull this piece out and see what we think. Let's pull this piece out rather than tangling them all up into what I think of as a ball of wire and then trying to deal with that. I think a lot of people would feel better about their lives if they could say, oh, wait a minute, let's untangle this problem. I'm not sure that we really teach that. Well, it's interesting. It comes back to the question, in my view, of 
why are Heather and Claire able to have this conversation and other people have such difficulty having conversations? And part of what I would argue is that our doctoral training was all about learning to have conversations. It was all about learning to listen to people. It was all about thinking on your feet and responding back and asking a question. And it's what we teach our students to do as well. But the defunding of education, the defunding of the humanities actually means that fewer and fewer people, even with college degrees, are spending time in classrooms where that's what they're learning. So that's interesting. For me, it wasn't graduate school or college. It was prep school. You know, that's what we did. And I, it, when I went to Phillips Exeter Academy and that's where I learned to love to argue about ideas. My friends and I still argue about ideas. That's our happy place. And I've never understood this leap from I'm making an intellectual argument to I hate you. I mean, it's not personal. That's the whole fun of it is that you're you're trying to figure out ideas. But for me, I wonder if it is associated maybe with 2016 in large part, but it always concerned me. This is going to sound like it's coming from somebody who's a thousand years old, but it concerned me when we stopped emphasizing grammar in in grade school, because what it seemed to me we got there for a while. Now we don't have it anymore. I think that's changed. But for a while, we got the idea that so long as you put your feelings down on paper, that you had written an essay. And that was something that I didn't learn in my grade school in a small town in Maine. We learned grammar. And one of the things that somebody has said to me about writing is that that's how you figure out your ideas. That's how things make sense to you. Whereas if, in, if instead you're just sort of vomiting on the page, you don't learn how to make arguments. You know, I, I, it's always made me very nervous that we produced a whole lot of people who didn't have the ability to make clean grammatical argument because so much of that is really just putting stuff in order so it makes sense as opposed to dredging it up from your heart. And it also requires being curious about ideas. It, it requires looking at what you've written and saying, what do I know? How do I know it? But I actually don't know this. So how am I going to find out? I want to shift a little bit back to the book. Normally, my last question, why should people read this book now? I think it's perfectly obvious why they should read it. So I'm going to ask you another question. We have the holiday giving season coming up. Why should people give this book to their relatives in an election year? Well, I'm so the wrong person to ask this because I'm really terrible at being material over the holidays, I have to say. But that being said, I think what this book really does is, you know, I've written in a million places about how we got here. I wrote an entire book on the Republican Party. I wrote about it in How the South Won the Civil War. And Lord knows we don't need another book on Donald Trump. But I think the third section of this book, which revisions American history, to support democracy, and I think really brings hope, is worth looking at. It leaves you at a run, and at a run where it makes you eager to go off and face this next year before the election. And I think we need that. I agree with you. And I'd like to encourage our listeners to sign up to work for a candidate, any candidate. It can be a school board candidate. It can be a senator, a congressman. It should be Joe Biden at some point. Um, I'm just going to nakedly say that. I won't commit you to that, Heather. But I also want to say that in the last election in 2020, tromping around in New Hampshire in the dead of winter 
for Elizabeth Warren was one of the most fulfilling things I had ever done in my life. And I would not have known that before I signed up for it. So I want to encourage our listeners to read your book and then sign up for a campaign and get out there and work for democracy. What do you say? Well, I would add to that, talk about democracy, take up oxygen, like I always say, but you could also run for something yourself. And, you know, it's funny, I I recently did something with a a woman who is now a state representative in Maine. And she said, you know, she was like, nobody told me I could run or couldn't run. I just decided I had to do it. And I did. And now she's a state representative and quite a good one, I have to say. And she said, you know, if anybody looking at me would never have thought I'd run. And here I did. And I won. And I like it. And I'm good at it. And I thought, you go, girl. We should all be doing the same thing. And that's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to Why Now on your favorite podcast platform. Please leave a rating and a comment so that other listeners can find us. Go to the Political Junkie Substack at clairepotter.substack.com for show notes, to listen to more episodes, or to leave a comment. You can subscribe to Political Junkie for free, or you can pay as little as $5 a month to get every podcast and every newsletter delivered straight to your desktop two times a week. Share this podcast with a friend who loves history, politics, and smart conversation. And follow me on Twitter at Tenured Radical, that's capital T, capital R, or at my website, clairepotter.com. Why Now is supported by the New School for Social Research and by paying subscribers to Political Junkie. Why Now and Political Junkie are written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Claire Potter. My opening theme is by Galaxy News, and my closing theme is by Avocado Junkie. That's all for now. See you next time.